God, 
What an incredibly beautiful, wonderful, caring, loving, compassionate, gracious, merciful God we serve. Job said, for I know. He said, I know. This is before Christ. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. What a Redeemer. What a Savior. Thank you, Father, for the hope that we have. And we can cling to that hope as a promise, Lord, for those that have trusted in you. I'm so grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, that you sent to pay a price we could never pay. The shed blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all of my sin, past, present, and future, and to this I say hallelujah. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. And I do pray, Lord, that as we, we sit at your feet now, you would teach us, that you would instruct us in your word, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. You may be seated. It's a joy-filled day because we have an opportunity to meet with Jesus once again as his body, as his people. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity God has provided for us to gather together in his precious and holy name. If you would turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verse 21 today, and this is part three in a series called The Heart of Service. We're going to go from Acts 20 to Matthew chapter 3, so be ready. We're going to be turning there shortly. But if you recall, you know, from a couple of weeks ago, and, and by the way, thank you, Harry, for sharing the truth last week. You must be born again. You must, you must, you must. That's what Jesus said. I believe that to be true. We're nearing the end of Paul the Apostle's third missionary journey. And if you remember, it was his heart's desire, a great desire he had in his heart to make his way to Jerusalem in time to celebrate the Passover feast. And on his way, he stopped in the city of Miletus. And while he was in Miletus, he sent a message to the leaders of the church at Ephesus, and he said, I, I need you to come to Miletus to meet with me. I need you. I need to instruct you. So they went. They went to meet Paul. And Paul's intention in speaking with them was twofold. First, he knew he would never see them again. So it's an, an emotional time in Paul's life, an emot emotional message that he would give to them. And the second thing, and most importantly, to establish groundwork for proper church leadership. He brought the leaders of the church at Ephesus together, and he said, this is what we need to do. And when we talk about proper church leadership, we're talking about biblical leadership, what the Bible says about it. So he provided this, this final exhortation and instruction to them in part one of, of uh, this series. We talked about the need, Paul expressed the need for personal integrity as a servant. It, it, attached to that is the need for humility. 
In part two, Paul talked about the first of two essentials for them as church leaders, and that is the need for truth. Paul said this, he said, I held nothing back from you that was profitable or beneficial. The things I shared with you are the things that you needed to hear because they're good for you. And what did he do? He showed them and he taught them the word of God. And he had an encouragement. He said, you need to do the same. The necessity family of teaching the word of God. And you see, that's what's profitable, isn't it? That's what's beneficial. That is what's good for us. It's our necessary meat, the scriptures say. There's no substitute for truth. And proper heart of service must include truth, and it has to be shared. It's not something that we can bottle up and save for later. No, no, we need to share it because God has given us the truth. He's given us his word. He's given us the Bible in order to share it with one another and to teach the word of God. And you know, when you think about it, withholding the word of God, and, and actually I've been in churches where they don't even open up their Bibles, and that's a shame because God has given us something so precious and so beautiful. He says, here, this is about me, and it's good for you. Paul said it's profitable. To withhold it is unloving, and it's spiritually harmful and dangerous. And you see, only the word of God can change a human heart. You can't even change your own heart. You can't change anybody else's heart. But the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it divides asunder joint from marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's why some people don't want to look at it. It addresses the heart issues, which is really the heart of the matter. The heart needs to be addressed, doesn't it? Because the scriptures tell us this, that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and who can know it? God knows it. And he's given us his word so the word can make its way into our heart and show us the things that need to be changed. And praise God, he cares enough about us to bring us to that place of change. Paul encouraged these elders. This is what is essential, and you need to do the same. It's essential to the church. Now, the third thing I want to touch on today regarding Paul's assistance on the essentials, the first was share the truth, just, just mention that. The second essential is found in verse 21. He said, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the second essential he mentions? The need for repentance. The favorite subject in the whole Bible, isn't it? <laughs> it's an important one. It's a vital one. It is a major theme in the New Testament. Unfortunately, many teach it as a minor and treat it as a minor or try to disregard it. And again, it's similar to withholding the truth of the Word of God. Choosing to withhold the need for repentance, what is it? It's dangerous spiritually. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, if you would. Speaking of John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2 says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
verse 8. It says, bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. John even described the purpose for baptism in Matthew 11, about repentance. But not only in these three verses, John also implies several times in this passage, his theme, John's theme is, it's repentance very clearly. Look at verse 3. For this is he, John, that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight. The theme uh, is, is repentance, which indicates this, that there is a need for preparation. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that people came from everywhere to be baptized and confessing their sins. In verses 7 and 8, John rebuked the religious elite because they had no fear of the wrath to come. It says this, oh, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned thee you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. You see, their religion was their God. So John the Baptist had a very, very specific mission to prepare the people for Jesus, as he said, to make his path straight. And in order for people to be prepared, there is an essential, crucial element to that preparation, and that is, you got it, repentance. So it's important that we understand the need for repentance because it is clearly emphasized in God's word. And let me say this, without repentance, what do we have? We have an empty message. We're missing a portion of the, the message, so important. So to put repentance into the proper perspective, consider this. The very first word of John the Baptist that we just read in verse 2 was repent. When Jesus began to preach his gospel, the word repent was among the very first words that he spoke. In Matthew 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he called people to repent even before he called them to believe. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, ye and believe the gospel. Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about repentance. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus addressing the Galileans, he said, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall likewise, all likewise perish. When Jesus sent the apostles out to preach, what was the first thing they preached? Well, Mark 6, 12, and they went out and preached that men should, what? Repent. You getting the message here? After Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he gave his disciples this instruction. Luke 24, verses 46 and 47, he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved or necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. 
In the very first sermon that Peter preached, when the church was established, Acts 2, 38, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When the Apostle Paul began to preach to the pagans in Athens, he told them very directly in Acts 17, 30, it says, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God commanded it. Now, given all of these verses that we just read about repentance, it's absolutely clear to me that repentance is a very important and essential part of Christianity. Do you agree with me that we cannot overlook and minimize, but rather emphasize the need for repentance? Do you agree with that? I mean, God emphasizes it here. I believe it's important because the Bible, the Word of God makes its importance crystal clear. And yet, and it's sad to say this, many churches don't touch the subject with a 10-foot pole. Many strike it from their preaching vocabulary or seldom call people to sorrow over sin and mourn and grieve over the wounding of Jesus Christ by their sin. Instead, what's often preached is this. Just believe and accept Christ and you'll be saved. Well, according to what we've been reading here, that's insufficient. Again, without repentance, family, we have an empty message. Well, if repentance is so important, then we ought to understand what it means. We need to understand this. Today, it seems so many have such a negative connotation. There's the image, of course, of the man in a street corner holding up a sign that says, turn or burn. Well, is there any truth in it? Well, sure, there's some truth in it, but you know, does that really draw a person to the love of Christ? It is his goodness, the scriptures tell us, that leads a person to repentance. Turn and burn there, sir. Oh, I've seen that. I've heard that. What did it do for me? It drove me away. Can it help? Maybe. But we need to understand that repentance is actually a wonderful thing. And it it truly is. It's spiritually essential and spiritually healthy. Some believe that repentance means simply change direction or turn from sin or change your mind about sin. And those things are true. I have taught that. But as I've spent more time studying this a little bit more deeply, I've learned there's, there's more to it. There's more to it than that. It means to have a very, very deep sense of remorse for my sin against God. It includes sorrow over sin. And along with it, to want to change direction. Not just as a decision, but as a desire to change. A heart-birthed desire that what I have done is an offense to God. And when I look at the cross of Christ and Jesus, thinking about Jesus hanging on that cross and the brutal suffering that that he went through, the torture and the pain, my, my sin, my sin caused that to take place. So yes, true repentance includes a desire to change, not, not simply a decision to change because of the need to change, but a hard desire to change because of the grief of my sin. So don't don't confuse being sorry with repentance. 
Simply being sorry doesn't constitute repentance, but rather true sorrow over sin does something else. It leads to repentance, the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying there's something much greater than just being sorry. Much of the world is sorry about the mistakes that we've made. Sorry, why? Well, because I got in trouble. Because I got caught. Whatever they might, might be. But, but Paul said this, godly sorrow, which means there's included within that, there is a, there's a sorrow for the grief that I've brought to my Savior. And it's grieving of my own sin that I have done this is an offense to God. And Paul went on to describe what true repentance looks like in 2 Corinthians 7, 11. Here's what he wrote. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all these things, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. He's saying, if I've seen these things, you got it right. He's saying that true godly sorrow, grief, mourning over us wounding Jesus with our sin leads to repentance. And then he said, here's what it looks like. It produces a diligence to forsake sin. It cleared you of your sin, forgiven. Praise God we can be forgiven. It created an indignation for that sin, which means a hatred for it. You know, God hates sin. But the question is, do we hate sin enough to forsake it? He also said it created a fear a healthy, holy fear of God and of his word, and it produced an enormous desire to do what's right, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And it produced a zeal, a desire in the heart to carry on in such a way in obedience to God. He also said it produced a vindication or a revenge against sin and its fruits, and then results in their being cleared from the sin. Matthew Henry said this, he said, not that they were innocent, but that they were penitent, and therefore clear of guilt before God, who would pardon and not punish them, and they ought no longer to be reproved. We have received the most incredible pardon we could ever, ever receive. You know, you read about presidential pardons of this, that, and the other thing. It's nothing compared to the pardon that we have received from our Savior. Nothing compared to that. Why? Because it stretches out through all of eternity. From here to eternity. So clearly, true repentance requires a change of action. It requires a change of heart. It births within us a desire to please God and a hatred for sin. Now remember Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. He was preaching to believers that sat under the word of God. He was teaching the word of God, and here's what happened. They remained in their sin. And Paul had a fear that they had not genuinely repented. And here's what he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would. He said, I expected something a little bit different. I expected that through the preaching of your word, your hearts would be impacted so much, so 
powerfully that you would grieve your sin and turn from your sinful ways, but he said, that's not what I found. Here's what he feared when he returned to them, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21. He said, unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. He said, it grieves my heart that they have not turned from the things that they partook of. Knowing they'd been well taught that a lifestyle of sin was wrong, he would find them still compromising. He's not talking about just an occasion to sin. We all have an occasion to sin, don't we? And those are serious too. What he's talking about is a lifestyle of sin. You haven't changed your lifestyle. You haven't changed your behavior. You're continuing to do the things that you've always done. That's presumptuous sin. The psalmist said, keep me from presumptuous sin, carrying on, just as if God didn't notice. That's not repentance. As a good shepherd over the flock at Corinth, he said, I bewail or I mourn over your sin. And it would break his heart because he realized the gospel that he shared hadn't impacted their heart in a way that he would have desired or the way that God would have desired it to impact their heart, and that is they haven't truly repented. It brings to my mind a very personal and very challenging question regarding repentance. Have I adequately preached what Jesus preached what Paul preached, what Peter preached, what John the Baptist preached, and that is, have I truly preached the gospel of repentance, or have I rather given people the wrong impression of what salvation is all about, minimizing the high cost of following Christ? Have I led unrepentant people into a place of false hope and false peace? Have I invited people to receive Christ who haven't experienced sorrow and grief over sin or embraced the seriousness of sin? You know, have I led people to think that they can hide sin behind the profession of faith? God forbid, without ever being truly changed by the deep work of God's Holy Spirit. You know, given those questions, I have to say this. In total honesty, I believe in some ways and sometimes I've failed in that regard. And I can only come before God and before you and say, forgive me. Because it needs to be presented properly. And I've often said, repentance means simply turn. No, it's only part of it. It certainly is a part of it. It's an important part of it, but it's not all of it. We must take sin seriously as we take Jesus seriously. Why? Because Jesus took sin seriously, didn't he? And I think God the Father took it so seriously. He said to his son, Jesus, I need you to go. I need you to leave this heavenly kingdom. And I want you to go to earth, go to planet earth, clothed in human flesh, and lay down your life. And allow sinful man to crucify you. To allow your blood to be shed so that they could be saved. 
Talk about love. Isn't, isn't it an incredible act of love on God's part? And I've said this to you before. You know, God could have very easily, at any point in time in human history, when Adam and Eve sinned onward, he could have said, you know, I, I've had it. I've had enough. Done. But he didn't. He continues to reach to sinful mankind. And in his words, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I think about sometimes as God's people, we can excuse ourselves. We can excuse our sin as being incidental or minimal compared to others. Can't we get into that pattern? Well, this is the... Maybe you never do that. But I have. But then again, when I, when I think about Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, the very first sin committed, it wasn't murder. It wasn't fornication. It wasn't incest. It wasn't child abuse. It wasn't robbery or adultery. It wasn't assault. Adam and Eve said to God, I know better than you, and they disobeyed him. What seems to be, you know, you might look at that and say, gee, that's not a big deal. It was a big deal to God because God said don't, and they said we will. We somehow, we, we, we think, God, you're withholding something from us because the devil's telling them that, and they listen to him rather than God. And they chose their own way. What's the consequence? You see it all over in the world today, don't you? It introduced suffering, death pain, sorrow, regret, you name it. You know, man was never designed to die. We're not wired for that. Yet we experience it, don't we? And it hurts. But for those that have trusted in Christ, yeah, there's the pain of loss and separation. However, there's a glory of the hope of the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? That God has given that to us. The blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But with Adam and Eve, it was what? It was one sin started this whole ball rolling. And believe me, I don't want to highlight and spotlight sin every single week, although we need to talk about it. I desire that we place the spotlight on Jesus Christ. And when we do, we recognize that the only reason Jesus came was to eradicate sin from our lives and to set us free. But we need to understand that every instance of sin is a betrayal against the Lord, and that's serious business. And, you know, we can think things like this. We can think, well, you know, we're we're pretty good church. We focus on the Word of God. I believe that we do. We exalt the name of Jesus. We've got prayer meetings. We've got outreaches to the community. There's a foundations of faith class. Look at all this stuff, God. But do we love God enough to obey him? Isn't that where the proverbial rubber hits the road? Do we love him enough to obey him? Do we love Jesus enough to grieve over sin and to allow God's Holy Spirit to break us of our stubbornness and the pleasure of sin for a season. Do we allow that? When Jesus wrote to the Ephesian church in Revelation 
too. And remember, it was a good church that Paul ministered to. And we're talking about the the meeting that Paul had with the Ephesian elders. And in Revelation 2, we know that Jesus commended the church. He said, "You, you folks labored hard for the Lord. You labored hard for me. They endured hardship. They hated sin. They hated false doctrine. They brought false leaders and teachers into question and removed them. And they didn't give up in the midst of enemy attacks. Those are all great things. But in spite of that condemnation, in spite of all the good, Jesus said, there's something missing here. There's something missing. And he so loves the church as he loves this church today. He warned them. He said in Revelation 2, verse 4, nevertheless, again, after all the commendation, he said, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. He didn't say you lost it. He said, you've left it. You've sidestepped it a bit. And then he said, remember from where you've fallen. Implies that they have fallen. Maybe they were content to just do church. Hey, I punch in when I get there. I punch out when I leave. Their zeal for Christ became a zeal for other things or for self. And and he's implying here that their love for Jesus was like a candle that was smoking. Just a small ember at the tip because the fire was extinguished. Jesus said, remember. Remember. He said, I want you to think back to when you couldn't wait to come to church. That you couldn't wait to embrace the saints in fellowship. Remember when you desired to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ rather than, I'm kind of busy today. Remember when your prayer life was alive and passionate. So it brings up a challenging question. Are you on fire for Jesus? Is your candle lit? Or is it an ember smoking? Are Christ's concerns your concerns? Are they my concerns? Or have you become kind of apathetic to the cause of Christ because life, hey, life's busy, isn't it? And life can tend to crowd our time with the Lord out. The church at Ephesus, Jesus saw all that was taking place and they were found guilty. I'm so grateful for Jesus. He didn't say, close your doors. He provided the remedy. He said, remember from where you've fallen and do what? He said, repent. He said, repent, or I'll have no choice but to come quickly and remove your candlestick. He's saying, I would remove the light. The church will no longer have an influence in lives, in the community, and in families. And you know what, family? Many churches around this nation that once started out well, that preached the gospel of repentance that Jesus preached, have given away to compromise. Chosen to abandon the need to repent from the sin that breaks the heart of Jesus and have resorted to something else, a different gospel. 
And some might argue the point, well, their seats are full. I see empty seats here. You know what, family? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. God brings who he brings. And he brings for his purposes. We're not counting seats here, full or empty. But some use that as a measure of success. Seats are full. But has the Spirit of God departed? You know, God gave the church at Ephesus a thousand years to repent. That's long-suffering, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. But they would not. You know, I don't want you to feel like this is a, a doom and gloom message because it really isn't. It's not a threatening message. It's an opportunity to get right with God and stand on the firm footing of repentance. Again, Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in verse 7 of Revelation 2, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Who's that that tree of life? It's Jesus. He will continually feed you and fill you if you allow him to. And remember, Jesus said, repent. He asked for repentance. And for those that repent, he promises to be that constant flow of supernatural spiritual life in you. And maybe you're not sensing that in your life right now. There's a reason for that. Maybe there's a need to repent. Isn't that what we need? I think we could all say, yeah, that's a need. But the more challenging question is this. Is this what we want? Is this what we want? Is it our heart's desire? Well, what am I to do today? What am I to do with this message? Well, clearly it's a call to repent. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance unto salvation. You know, maybe you haven't really grieved your sin. And therefore, there hasn't really been that supernatural change. Well, what can you do? Oh, it's not hard. But it means this. Ask God to give you his heart. His heart towards sin. And an understanding that your sin grieves him and breaks his heart. God, put in my heart the things that are affecting your heart when I do the things that I do. And you know it grieves God's heart. Because he saw his son hanging from the cross. Just like those around did. And just like we know about. And ask him right now, Lord, give me a truly repentant heart. Give me a heart that breaks over my sin because it grieves you. And a, a broken heart over sin isn't, isn't like, well, okay, feel bad about it. No, it's something much, much deeper than that. And I'll be honest with you, I need this. I need to feel that brokenness of heart so that I can have the zeal to walk away from sin and obey my Lord. I need it. It's too easy to not 
receive all of that. God doesn't do it to make us feel bad about ourselves. He invites us into this so that we can be whole and complete. Growing spiritually. Fruit bearing forth from our lives. Have you truly repented? Well, let's ask Jesus to do that necessary work so he can take us farther and deeper than we've ever been before. So let's pray. Let's pray. You know what? I'm going I'm to suggest this. I'm going to pray silently. You know what you need to pray <coughs> silently too. So take a moment and just ask God for whatever is needful and necessary to take place in your heart that you'd be willing to allow him to make those changes in your heart now with regard to repentance. Just take a moment and just settle into the Lord. Amen. If there's any here that don't know Christ personally, or perhaps later listening on, online, this is an extremely critical and important decision that you need to make. And it's a decision that will affect your life from here throughout all of eternity. And it's a decision to come to Jesus, realizing and recognizing that you need him and that you've sinned against him. So let's pray. And Father, I come to you now, now, and I realize that my sin is an offense to you. And yet, I'm so grateful that you have given me the opportunity right now to come clean before you and confess my sin. I confess to you, Lord God, that I'm a sinner, that I've sinned, and that I need Jesus as my Savior. I realize and recognize that when Jesus laid his life down on the cross, Jesus, you did that for me. Your body was broken and your blood was shed so that I could be forgiven of my sin. Please, by your grace, forgive me. Lord, I realize that my sin is not only an offense to you, but it grieves your heart. And it's breaking my heart right now to realize what I've done. Help me to turn from my sin plant that desire in my heart, that zeal in my heart to walk with you all the days of my life.
And I'm so grateful that you've provided a way for a sinner like me to spend eternity with you. You rose from the dead on the third day, and you have now given me new life, risen in Christ life. And I thank you for that. And I praise you. Help me, Lord, in my walk with you from this day forward, and help me to tell others about you, that they would know how good you are. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.